whenever you want to, okay? Whenever you want to. You know, it's, it's funny how things like that develop, like norms in the life of a church. The things we do and don't do that we never said we were going to do or not do, we just sort of get comfortable with those things. We're returning this morning to 2 Thessalonians. We're continuing in this, this opening, really, display of comfort that Paul gives these believers. Um, you recall that we, we cut off our, our sermon uh, on the first main point last week. And so I want to try to, as quickly as I can, catch us up. We are in 2 Thessalonians, concluding most recently Zephaniah and prior to that 1 Thessalonians, giving a lot of attention to the day of the Lord. And as, as Paul opens up this second letter, you recall there was a, a little bit more sober tone, a little bit more intention with the things that he is trying to address that maybe weren't quite as clear in the first letter. And this second letter came a few months later, most likely. And Paul is giving this letter to encourage them and also correct some things, as we learn, uh, correct some issues with their belief about the return of Christ. Some believing that he had already come, some believing that he was coming so soon that they just quit going to work and they quit doing the things that they were supposed to do. So there was this need for the second letter. Uh, Paul gives us this good, solid introduction a reliance upon God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays, really, as he introduces his letters, much like a prayer, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we began talking about this comfort under the theme, God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. And I suppose I ought to mention our our title for the whole series is Unshaken, and that comes from later in the book, chapter 3, chapter 2 and 3. Uh, God brings essential comfort in uncertain times. Last week, we talked about the first way we experience this comfort, and it is by the recognition and thankful celebration of growth. And you all know those experiences where people bring to mind the way that God has graciously brought you to where you are. And you can, uh, you can think about those things and be comforted in the fact that, like, hey, he's doing this work no matter what's going on around me, no matter what sort of, in their, their case, persecutions and afflictions have come upon them. So we recognize that by God's grace, we have grown. We at the same time celebrate that growth together. We talked about how thankfulness here is an obligation. He speaks of it in terms of duty. Uh, he, he also shows us how thankfulness to God, uh, it has an explanation. He mentions their faith and love and their hope in certain terms that reflect his first letter. And then he also shows us how thankfulness to God produces celebration. Thankfulness to God produces celebration. Oh, give me one second.
my file is having trouble. <coughs> Kyle, I might need your help. I'm sorry. I'm going to read the passage while Kyle tries to figure out what is uh, the issue with my file. Okay. I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> hey, way to be ready. In season and out of season. Ready. I'm sorry about that. Let's read uh, beginning in verse, uh, well, let's just start at the beginning. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we also, or excuse me, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray once more. Father, we are grateful to open up your word today, to be transformed by your word. Be with us, send your spirit, help us in every way. Let us know and see Jesus in clearer and better ways as we await his final appearing. Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So by the recognition and thankful celebration of growth, that was our first reason for comfort. Now, the second reason for comfort he gives in verses 5 through 12, by the reminder and hope-filled expectation of glory. The reminder and hope-filled expectation of glory. Now, I want to give you an explanation of glory here, and it may be review for some of you all. Uh, you've heard me talk about these things, but when we speak of the glory that is to be revealed, we are talking about the, the very uh, radiance of God himself. The word glory has attached with it the idea of weight or weightiness. 
And so when we talk about glory, as he mentions four times in this passage, a reference to glory, four times, when we talk about this, this is something, this glory is something that belongs to the Lord Jesus, but also in some sense, as you read, it is shared with the redeemed. That's a mesmerizing truth, a mesmerizing reality. Paul's prayer is that Christ is glorified in these saints and that they would be glorified in him. So the glory is multifaceted. Biblically, God's glory is described in ways that cannot be conceived or withstood by human eyes, okay? The physical human eye. You recall Moses only got a glimpse of the backside of the glory of God. And wouldn't you know it that there was a a rock cleft for him so that he would be able to catch that hint of glory. God tells Moses, he says, no man can see me and live, Exodus 33, 20. That's God's glory. You can't withstand this. However, the apostle John teaches us, he says essentially the same thing in chapter 1 and 18, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. So, verse 14, you back up a little bit, and John tells us, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what kind of glory is this? Did they walk around and look at Jesus, and he had all this this beaming glory around him? No. You see that, a glimpse of that in the transfiguration. And in fact, Isaiah says, hey, there's nothing special about him that we should look at him and think that he is any different from us as far as humanity goes. So the glory that John is talking about is a glory that is seen with the eyes of faith. It's a glory that's revealed to those who believe. Now, As Paul mentions this glory here, he's reminding us of these many rich facets of God's character that has been unchanged since forever. He's showing us in these verses how this glory is to be revealed in the Lord Jesus. And now this time, it's not just glory that has to be seen with the eyes of faith. It is glory that will be seen in in human eyes. Now, as much as we can possibly understand that when he returns. Now, the sight we know from this passage, like, it's so hard to preach passages like this, or even in your own study, it's hard to understand passages like this because it speaks of things that are just too great and glorious for us to even understand. What type of glory will people see? Obviously, they'll see some glory. It won't be the fullness that... God said, you can't see me and live, but it will be the person of Jesus as he communicates that glory. The second person of the Trinity. He'll reveal as much as possible to human eyes when he returns. This sight will be gloriously incomprehensible. Now, I I read this passage and it makes me think of how... um, If there's a movie that you have watched, maybe a a great movie that, you know, you watch it one time, you're like, man, that's a good movie. You watch it again, and you start to pick up more detail. 
And you watch it again and again. And you start to see all these little things that you didn't realize on the front end made this movie so good. And you know, when, when Christ returns in power and might, the, the text says right here, it says that he'll be marveled at among those who believe. Marveled at. Don't hold me to this, okay? But I tend to believe that this moment will somehow like just switch to slow-mo for the believer. That by God's grace, we'll be able to soak in the beauty and majesty of what's happening when Christ returns. It may not be so for the unbeliever. In fact, I don't think so. As I was studying, I looked up the world's fastest camera. This is mind-blowing. The world's fastest camera captures 70 trillion frames per second. <laughs> if, if, if humans can make something like that, then when Christ returns, we have an event where believers will be sort of scrapbooking forever. And it's like, you want to revisit that moment? Hey, you go to that massive library where all those photos were captured, every still frame, and you can take the, the pictures of, of Christ's return and flip through those things and re-enjoy that all over again. We will enjoy this moment. We will marvel at this moment in such a way that it will cause us to multiply our worship for the Lord Jesus forever. So he says here, this glory is coming. You know, to the Corinthians, he wrote a little bit. He said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction, a similar type statements here. These people are afflicted. The Corinthians are you know, dealing with affliction. Paul talking about his own affliction. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And in that context, he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Okay, so you get it then and there. Now, to the, to the Thessalonians here in this second letter, he's telling them, hey, those things that are unseen, they're going to be seen. They're going to become seen at the revelation of Jesus. Now, he says here right at the beginning of, of our text for today, this is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That, that word evidence is like a plain indication. And you need to know that in the original language, in the Greek, um, that doesn't start a new sentence. In fact, uh, Paul is a big fan of run-on sentences. So where it starts in verse 3, that is one sentence all the way through verse 12. All one sentence. And you wonder like, man, how do we make sense of that in English? Surprisingly, People are able. So these words here, beginning of verse 5, this is 
an explanation. It's expounding on the previous thought. So the evidence, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul extends the comfort of encouraging words about their growth to add more comfort at the thought of what is to come. Look, persecution and affliction will have little to no meaning without a good reason or end to which it points. Speaking as someone who attempts to work on uh, my mechanical things at the house from time to time or fix minor things on my vehicles, um, those of you that do this, you know that, man, sometimes it is an absolute pain to replace a part. You know, a, a, a bolt breaks, a nut is stripped, whatever it is. And you may come through repairing this vehicle with a shredded arm, as I experienced one time trying to change an uh, uh, oil pressure sensor. Okay? Oil pressure sensor, nothing to it except where it's located. You know, I'm willing to endure that pain because the thought of having a working vehicle at the end motivates it. It makes the pain worth it. In the end, I'm fixing my vehicle. So Paul is doing the same thing here. He's like, hey, your persecution, your affliction, your suffering, it all has meaning in the grand scheme of things. And that's what you need to remember. Remember the grand scheme. He brings comfort with this vivid reminder of the glorious revelation of Jesus to serve as medicine for their wounds, their wounds of persecution. He says there, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, as he just said, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring the evidence of the righteous judgment of of God. The righteous judgment of God. He says, this is coming. And the proof is that you are enduring. That you are pressing forward. You want proof that God's judgment is coming? Your persecutions are the evidence. Because God will not let your persecutions and afflictions go unpunished. As he adds here, you want proof that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God? Your afflictions and suffering serve as evidence in the end. And so the comfort that comes from God here is rooted in this glorious vengeance that gives believers hope. So a few hopes I want to point out here. First off, God will repay through Christ. God will repay through Christ. You see in verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. If you keep going at the end of verse 7, I'll come back to the beginning, but the end of verse 7, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God will repay through Christ. We know what the word says. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and I will 
repay. I will recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And Paul referencing this concept for the Romans, Romans 12, 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul reminds them in that context that these things will be dealt with by God. And he's doing the same here. They'll be dealt with by God who's put the responsibility of that judgment in the hands of Jesus. And now some might come away from a passage like this and say, well, well, God is just, you know, vengeful. He's vindictive. He's, he's all about retribution. Martin says, however, any accusation that God is a God of retaliation at the expense of his mercy is completely unfounded. He writes, mercy is not only available to the church, but also to the persecutors of the church. Who's writing this letter? Who's writing this letter? It's the, the, the worst persecutor of the church Maybe in history. But God showed him mercy. Paul's own life illustrated that God was patient. That he was merciful. That he extended that mercy to all these. So we don't want to avoid this truth. God will Repay through Christ. Divine retribution is a comfort, believer, and an encouragement to us. As the world increasingly ap applies pressure to the followers of the Lord Jesus, we must, firstly, not be surprised. Uh, Kyle and I were able to attend a little meeting of pastors this week where we heard uh, a pastor and, and chancellor of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, Ligon Duncan, he spoke. One of the things he spoke about was this reality of persecution and affliction. And I thought it was so funny. He's talking about this persecution, and he, he said, at some point, if you want to be like Jesus, you got to be like Jesus. And he was speaking of that persecution. We all want to be like Jesus, but we forget how Jesus learned obedience, as the writer of Hebrews says, by the things he suffered. Now let that send you into all kinds of wondrous thought about our Savior. We should not be surprised when a persecution and affliction come upon us. Jesus said it and Paul says it over and over again in his letters as well. Firstly, we must not be surprised. One thing he said this week, he's like, uh, when, when you're surprised by persecution, it's like, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> you're surprised by affliction. Why me? Have you, ever, have you ever read the Bible? Secondly, we need to find comfort that righteous, the righteous judgment of God is on the horizon, and it is coming quickly. You remember Zephaniah 3.19? Behold, 
At that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And we see from verses 7, 8, and 9, these glorious and terrifying details. Hear these things. Angels accompany the Lord Jesus as an extension of his power, which the New Testament bears witness to over and over again. They join him in flaming fire. Commentators note that it's difficult to know if the fire is from the angels or if it's from the Lord Jesus. And honestly, to me, the uncertainty of it adds to the idea that this vision will be completely overwhelming to the senses. What we know from the Old Testament is that God's judgment is often described as an all-consuming fire, an onslaught not survivable by humanity. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. This is the future for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Now, that's an interesting phrase. They do not obey the gospel. Some of you are like, man, you, you often talk about the gospel as an event. It is an event. It is the message of Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is the gospel. So how can somebody not obey the gospel? Really, the gospel contains inherently a call to repentance and faith. Failure to respond to the gospel in this way ensures an eternal state of being really both dead and at the same time always dying. In eternal punishment, not annihilation, because annihilation would be better for God's enemies. It ensures permanent separation from God's goodness and glory. It is banishment forever. Those who reject Christ will know God's wrath well, and they will only ever wonder what the grace of a single drop of water might feel like as it refreshes the tongue. And you know that Bible reference. Let me add another layer to this. You can get caught up in this language and like fury and wrath and yes, God's going to win. And that's right. But this is not a call to some sort of like management of anger and frustration toward persecutors. You know, like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm enraged at you, persecutors, yeah? No, th this, is, this is a call from Jesus to something that is more extraordinary in his kingdom. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you know, after Paul reminded the Romans that vengeance belongs to the Lord, he echoed Jesus' teaching, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Let me complete the idea. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, he says, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is the idea of repentance. This is not like, I gotcha. Okay? And he says, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The remedy to your fleshly inclination for payback, the remedy is the way of Christ. And it ought to calm the sea of your emotions that rages under persecution and affliction and suffering of all kinds. And really that points us to a second hope that he mentions. The first hope, God will repay through Christ. The second hope he gives us, God will relieve in Christ. God will relieve in Christ. You see in verse 7, part of the purpose is to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And then you get to verse 10 and it says he's going to come and on that day he'll be glorified in his saints. In these thoughts, our focus is shifted to the other side of this encouraging comfort, that of rest and relief. God mercifully grants those who believe in Christ rest in him. As you heard earlier from the reading, he built rest into the created order. Rest from your labors. He instructed his people to observe this Sabbath rest. And many of you this afternoon, you're going to recline in your chair or you're going to lie down on your couch and you're going to get another little glimpse of that rest that is found in Jesus alone. The writer of Hebrews writes with some repetition about this rest in Christ, as well as the, the lack of rest for those who don't trust Christ, those who disobey the gospel. Psalm 9511 says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we know that rest and relief comes in Christ, Christians. Yet, we only know it practically in the presence of much affliction and hard labor. And while we must rest in Christ now, the day will come when that rest is made complete and it is perfected. It will be a day of permanent relief. The rest we have in Christ is so valuable to us now in the face of all these things in that day we'll have that full experience of his rest. He's reminding and comforting these people, these people with this truth. He's also gearing up in these verses to address some of the outworkings of uh, the lawlessness indicative of the end times. He does that in chapter 2, which we'll cover over the next couple of weeks. Right here, however, he debunks the teaching that Christ has already returned. If he had returned, the people of God would be at rest. It's that simple. 
We're not experiencing rest. We're awaiting his return. So these people, they recognize that they're still under the affliction of the enemies and they desperately need these encouraging words to endure. And we also see, as I mentioned, verse 10, about how he will be glorified in his saints when he comes. It causes us to look beyond the rest to also the glory. It says when he comes, he'll be glorified in his saints. So when our Sabbath rest in Christ is made perfect, at the same time will be reflections of his glory. That's the best way I can describe the way he shares his glory with us. You know, when you go to the department store, uh, you can try on clothes and you walk out into the, I guess, you know, the, the area where the mirrors are. Unfortunately, you know, we're too focused on the things we want to cover up and not see. And when you get in those mirrors, you start to see all the different angles and the different sides of how this outfit is fitting on you. But you see all the perfection and the glory that is contained in the person of Jesus at the return of Christ will become the mirrors of that glory. And his glory will be amplified. It will be displayed in a way that couldn't happen without the salvation that he brought to us. Christ's glory on this day will radiate off of his people. It gives us a third hope here as well. God's people will marvel at Christ, as I mentioned earlier. He'll be glorified in his saints. He'll be marveled at among all who believe. Martin says this echoes the psalm's use of the word awesome. Our God is awesome. It is this awe-inspiring event. Believers will marvel at the Lord Jesus in his glorious return and as he executes righteous judgment on all the earth. And I've said it before, words simply do not capture what we have here. Words do not capture what will be. But I love how Paul goes from this glorious thought, like the biggest event that we're waiting on. He goes from this glorious thought back to the people that he's writing to. And he says there, be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You, saints, are partakers in this event, onlookers at the glory to be revealed, all because of your faith in Christ through the gospel preached. And so the little ones of Thessalonica that believed, Paul is assuring them, hey, this glorious event, you're going to be right there looking at all of this. You're going to see all of this. And all of this, because you believe. I know for, for so many of us, part of the beauty of the gospel is its simplicity. 
And part of the reason that people stumble over Jesus is the simplicity of the gospel. You're telling me that I will have all of this in the end by believing on Jesus? Yes. Yes. Unbelievers, man, respond to the message in repentance and faith. Trust Christ. There's a fourth hope that we have very briefly. God's people will realize their prayers. That is, their prayers will come to fruition. God's people will realize their prayers. And we see Paul modeling this in verses 11 and 12. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that God, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul prays for them the things that are sure to happen. And a bit of advice for you as you pray. There is always uh, security in praying like this. You can pray with confidence the things that you know God will do. Sometimes we, we think, well, God's going to do that, so I don't need to pray for it. No, no, no. Just as Paul models here, it is reaffirming to these people, and it is reaffirming to him that God's uh, word promises these things. Pray for the things that God will assuredly do. He keeps, Paul keeps, the local church at the forefront of his mind, even when thinking and writing about this majestic event, he prays God would do some things. First off, you know that he would make you worthy of his calling. He would make you worthy of his calling. He says at the beginning of this text that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And now he says that he may make you worthy of his calling. So this is the evidence of their calling that will abound and multiply, pro producing more evidence and more proof that they belong to Jesus. It's going to produce, produce more of the, the grace necessary to endure under persecution. And then secondly, he says, make you fully resolved for good. That God would make you fully resolved for good. So this is all the intentions of the saints that rise from godly motives, Paul is praying that God will fulfill those. And then thirdly, make you faithfully work in power. That God would make you faithfully work in power. This refers to every act rendered in faith. And we know from scriptures, anything that's not done from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. These together are a prayer that the glory of Christ would be displayed through his people. And then he says it backwards. That the glory of his people would be displayed in him. There is a beauty in the end of all things. That the very glory of the Lord Jesus, that glory that no man can look upon and live, 
the glory that has been communicated in Jesus will also belong to us. These are heavy matters. Now we as the local church, we recognize maybe things are not quite like they were in Thessalonica. But folks, as we live in this world, as we press forward, we need to call upon this comfort from God, the reminder that the big picture is yet to happen. That Christ will return, flaming fire, vengeance upon all those who disobey the gospel. This is a terrifying event, folks. As we look toward that day, as we investigate maybe a little further that day in these next couple of weeks, let's cling to that grace of God, that grace of God that has caused us to grow, that grace of God that will help us to remain steadfast under trial. Let's pray and we'll respond. Kyle will be here to, to receive anybody who may need to respond. I want to encourage you, believer, as you think about these things, just marinate in that, that vision, that sight that he portrays for us in this text. Unbeliever, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful once again for your word. We're grateful to be able to gather together to expound this word, to think upon things that are far too great for us. Father, we, we ask that your grace would be showered upon us in a way where we can continue steadfastly. In, a, in a, a world and in a time and an age when many fall away, when many seem to give up, Father, let us be the ones who continue. Holy Spirit, help us as we respond to the word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with us. We're going to sing one day. We're going to 